welcome to That Rooted Feeling Podcast, where I bring you high-value health information and practical tips to help you improve your lifestyle habits with a focus on plant-centered nutrition so you can achieve optimal wellness that radiates into and improves all aspects of your life, giving you that rooted feeling that you won't know until you have it. Welcome back to another week and another episode of That Rooted Feeling. I'm Dr. Brooke Stubbs, an internal medicine and lifestyle medicine physician and owner of Rooted Femme, a concierge practice in Austin, Texas, where I help women achieve optimal wellness through a plant-centered and lifestyle approach to wellness. I am here today with a very special guest, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, also known as Dr. B and the Gut Health MD. Dr. B is a double board certified physician in internal medicine and gastroenterology. He studied and trained at Vanderbilt, Georgetown, Northwestern, and the University of North Carolina. His background is in epidemiology, and he has contributed to over 20 scientific publications. He is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Fiber Fueled, and he's recently released the Fiber Fueled Cookbook. He is currently the U.S. Medical Director at Zoe, which is a personalized nutrition program based on the health of the gut microbiome, and he is an expert in all things gut health. Dr. B, I am such a huge fan of yours. Thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited to be here. Thank you, Brooke. Excited to get into it. Great. Um, I love your book. I recommend it probably to everybody I talk to about plant-based nutrition. And certainly my patients know it. A lot of our listeners will know it because I talk about it a lot. It came across my uh, lap when I was transitioning from being a hospitalist to then lifestyle medicine. And it has really molded how I talk to my patients about their gut health. But for people who may not know you, can you tell us a little bit about you, your mission, and what this book's all about. Yeah. Um, the whole thing of me being an author and writing this, you know, uh, book that has sold several hundred thousand copies now is bizarre to me. <laughs> this was not my plan. I didn't like plan ahead for this. And so it just kind of things fell into place. And I feel like the cosmos kind of guided me towards this. So if you went back 10 years ago, I was still in my medical training. I was in my early 30s and I was very unwell on a number of different levels. I feel like medical training is so intense and rigorous, so over the top yeah, that it forces you to give a piece of your soul. Mm-hmm. Like you have no choice. You have to give it and, um, and make compromises. And one of the compromises that I made is that, look, I don't have a lot of time. I don't have a lot of money. So when I eat, it's going to make me like, it's going to be the food that I want. It's going to be the food that tastes good. And it doesn't matter if it affects my health. As long as it tastes good, that's what the priority is. And so like this sort of compromise, basically having no money, just wanting food that tasted good. It led me towards ultra processed foods and fast food. I had a junk food diet this was the dominant factor. Like this was like almost every meal and I paid the price. I was 50 pounds overweight. I had high blood pressure, high cholesterol. I had, uh, I was in a bad place from an emotional perspective. I was, you know, I would describe myself as depressed, um, very low self-esteem and sitting there feeling unwell. 
I just wanted to feel better. And I knew that I was not in a good place. I knew that I needed a fix. But the weird thing about it all is that, you know, despite all this training and I was a board certified internal medicine doctor at the time, I didn't want my own medicine. I didn't want what I had been trained to actually do to help my own patients. I wanted something else. Um, and I struggled to find that. And being sort of a typical early 30s male, I tried exercising my way out of this hole and was quite surprised that despite like really intense exercise, I still couldn't fix these problems. Right. And so the whole sort of adage of like, you know, you can eat whatever you want as long as you exercise enough, it proved to not actually work. Right, right. It isn't so, about calories in, calories out. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I, I, I just think that, you know, at the end of the day, your overall dietary pattern probably makes up 80 or 85% of your modifiable health and risk for disease. Yeah. And these other things, they're definitely important. There is no doubt that like exercise is uh, relevant, but it's not the dominant factor. Diet is your dominant factor. For sure. So it's so funny that you talk about just knowing that you wanted something different. I'm wondering, I had a very similar situation in medical training. I went and saw one of my super, you know, my supervising attendees and I went to her clinic and I was like, I just don't feel great. I'm in my early thirties. I'm in the prime of my life, but I just don't feel well. And all of my markers were great. My labs were great. My vitals were great. So I had a little different scenario, but she was like, I don't know where you're here. She really couldn't offer me anything. And I didn't really have the insight. I don't think at the time to say, you're not focusing on your health. I would have given any anything for somebody to say, you need to eat better. You need to sleep more, but that's just not the culture really. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that there is a, there is a um, cultural problem, which is that we just accept that during that period of time in your life, you're going to be destroyed and you're going to have to give everything you got um, in order to uh, be able to keep up with the demands of the job. But, you know, I also think that what you're bringing up, Brooke, is a huge and important point, which is that, you know, our patients, they experience things, they have feelings, they know their own body. And they come to us, like, not because they want to be there, they come to us because they really sincerely believe that that they need help. And they believe that you're the person that can help them. And one of the issues that exists within our healthcare system is that patients get dismissed. Mm -hmm. They show up, they say, I, I don't feel well. And we say, well, your markers look good. And it's like, are the markers really the measure of health? Right. They're not. And so, and th this is, you know, part of the issue is that we need to, we need to hear what these people are bringing to us and find solutions that go beyond just the measures that we have in allopathic medicine. Right. Um, and I so, think that, you know, how busy we are and how the healthcare system is set up really to treat acutely with medications and you see patients for no longer than 15 minutes. It's just not set up for counseling. I think that's why I left in the first place was I knew my power was being able to talk to patients and really like draw out their story to figure out what was going on. And I wasn't able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think 15 minutes is it's impossible to have a good conversation about nutrition in 15 minutes. And frankly, in today's healthcare system, not only do you have to meet your patient, listen to your patient, give recommendations pay to your patient. You also need to write your note. Oh yeah. 
And if you run behind the next patient and series of patients, they're all pissed mm -hmm. because you're running late. And this is a, um, a structure problem within our healthcare system because we're not affording the time for actual an actual doctor patient relationship, which is really where healing begins from my perspective. So I think that ultimately um, transformation has to come from individuals saying, I'm just not going to do it this way. Yeah. And it's hard because the system is not going to make that easy. So you have, it forces, you know, doctors to take risks or to do things that impact the bottom line in terms of how much money they bring home to their family. Right. And those are sacrifices that I don't really see as being fair because we don't ask people in other industries to do that, to take a pay cut in the interest of the greater good yeah. you know, outside of their own family. But unfortunately, that's what happens. Yeah. You know, so for me as a gastroenterologist, when I transitioned towards having these conversations with my patients, I mean, I certainly, like, I don't even like to think about it. And I certainly never talked to my wife about it, how much money was lost in the process of doing that. It was a lot. Right. <laughs> and so, I, but I think that at the end of the day, it, it's people who are willing to take a stand. And I think that patients also, they need to reward the providers who do take that stand. Mm -hmm. And if we don't reward those providers, then why would they continue to do that? If, if we're not, you know, making it in some way beneficial to them, um, even if it's just thanking them for their hard work. Right, um, right. And yeah, it's kind of like uh, a no appreciation job sometimes when you're really out there working in the service industry, but sometimes they expect you to have all the answers and know all the answers and they don't really see where you're coming from. Um, but yeah, even just appreciation goes a long way. I guess my question is, how do we get patients to get on board with kind of changing that culture to seek out physicians in that realm where they're really focused on a whole lifestyle approach? You know, that's, a, that's an interesting question because I think it has to um, precede them engaging with the traditional healthcare system. Like mm -hmm. they have to make up their mind before they start to reach out to medical providers that this is something that they want. Because if you're just rolling the dice on who is good my doctor going to be, you know, then the odds are like by far that you're not going to engage with a doctor who happens to do this. Yeah. And I think just messaging too, like I love how much you put out there, like the difference in the change. I know I have experienced just a whole plethora of changes and opportunities and just feeling so much better and this sense of well-being. It's like convincing people that that's the transition they need, that there's so much more to life to, um, I don't know, giving them that hope or inspiration maybe. Well, and this is this is part of where I see the placement of things like social media or, you know, for example, if I write a book, um, it is not my expectation that a person reads my book and implements the ideas without a healthcare provider. That is not my expectation. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't I actually don't want that. But what I do want is I want to inspire people. I want to open their minds. I want them to see that there's an opportunity here for them to change their diet and lifestyle and transform their health, potentially reversing diseases they already have and preventing diseases that they may be at risk for in the future. So to me, that's sort of where the, these things fall into place is that they can be useful tools in terms of creating that inspiration for the individual person before they enter into the healthcare system and go to find a provider that can actually complement 
um, that desire that they have. Yeah, I absolutely agree that it's lovely if they want to step into this world holding the hand of a medical provider. I think that there's so many barriers to do that. Is there any recommendations you have for patients who want to kind of start on a plant-based journey, but don't know like really easy, simple steps that are probably, you know, um, very benign, like they're not going to adversely affect them, but are going to get them on the right path, like those beginning steps? I think that, you know, so to me, um, it starts with empowering yourself, empowering yourself with knowledge, knowledge that can be acquired for free. So like, you don't have to even buy my book, mm-hmm. go to the library. It's okay. I'm quite sure it's there. And, yeah. and again, this is not e- even my book specifically. It could be other books. There's plenty of great books that are evidence-based, but what we want is we want sources of content that are reliable, that are evidence-based that we can actually trust. Mm-hmm. One of the biggest issues that I see in 2000, you know, 22, 2023 is that we're so quick to trust on the internet without ever asking the question, is the best, is this the best source of information for me? And I'm like shocked by the people, like I'm sincerely shocked by the people who reach out to me through, for example, social media. And they say, Hey, this person who, you know, is a business person and has absolutely no medical training at all said that kale is unhealthy for us. How do you respond to that? I'm like, why are you listening to them? I'm actually just laughing because right before we we jumped on this call, um, my office manager was like, you maybe you should ask them that question somebody asked you about kale being unhealthy. I'm like, that's not a thing. We all know that kale is healthy. The question is whether or not coffee with butter in it is healthy. That's a different <laughs> question, right? So... You know, so so the point is that I, th- I actually think that like what is exciting is that we have more access to information than we've ever had. What's challenging to all of us, myself included, is that we have to curate who we choose to listen to. Yeah. And we shouldn't just accept every voice as being equally powerful and relevant. Instead, right. we should uh, identify the best sources of information and then open our ears to those people and ignore the nonsense because we have to acknowledge the amount of nonsense that exists on the internet. Yeah. So, um, so I really think that, you know, it sort of starts with empowering yourself with knowledge to understand the why, like, I don't want people to just eat. I mm-hmm. want you to understand why you're eating the food that you're eating, understand like how appealing and exciting it is that these foods were placed onto this earth and designed like strategically by the by a higher power to right. nourish her body, right? And um, and how magical the science that we've discovered through during particularly the last 15, 20 years, how magical this science is that explains the ways in which the, the body can accept this food and transform it into what ultimately becomes you. Yeah. So that to me is like you have to address the why. And once you address the why, then actually putting this into action becomes, I think, a lot more easy because you're inspired and it's something that you want to do and it's authentic and it's not um, someone dragging you, kicking and screaming towards a bowl full of kale. Um, I feel that so deeply, just like the wonder and awe of these plant foods that were put here for us, because I think that we 
um, yes, the science is fabulous and, and so fantastic and it's always evolving. Um, but we are kind of marveling, I think, a little bit of, about everything that we're discovering because there's so much we still don't know about these perfect plant foods that, you know, not only nourish our bodies, but provide medicinal components um, to our health. Um, yeah. So I feel that very deeply. Yeah. I mean, I honestly, I honestly think that we know like one or 2% of what's happening out there. Yeah. And um, this is part of the reason why we're really good when it comes to big stuff. Like what does a heart attack look like? Right? Like this is a very big thing, but what we're not so good at is like, understanding the buildup towards that that takes place over 50 years and so but there's things that are just completely clear and what's completely clear is that people live longer with lower risk of disease by eating more plants and it's a simple concept this is not an all or nothing thing there is absolutely no requirement for you to look at this and think dr b is saying that i need to be vegan that is not what i'm saying what i'm saying is no matter where you are i want to meet you where you are and I want to motivate you to make changes that move you towards better health. And for the, for, I mean, essentially all of us, that change is taking away the junk food, the ultra processed food, the excessive amounts of animal products, and instead replacing that with plants. And when we do that, it is a transition where it's basically like you're taking the weak stuff and you're replacing it with the strong stuff. And this is how you make a stronger body. Yeah, I hear that. I want to take a minute and tell you about K-Tonic Kombucha. If you're not already on the kombucha train, you should be because it provides billions of live cultures to build a healthy gut microbiome. And K-Tonic is my favorite kombucha brand. I found it while scouring the shelves for a kombucha that didn't have any added sugar. That is the number one thing I look for on the label when I buy any kombucha because so many of the makers mask this healthy fermented beverage with loads of fructose and added sugars. It's also 100% organic and I'm totally on board for that. I have never tasted a better kombucha. It is so light and refreshing and my favorite flavor is elderberry. You can find it here in Austin at natural food grocers like Central Market or they also have this free home delivery option for anyone in the greater Austin area. You can order your case on ktonickombucha.com. That's K-T-O-N-I-C-K-O-M-B-U-C-H-A dot com. Now back to the episode. Yeah, you just have such a great way of talking and simplifying the things and like inspiring and putting it in a way that people can understand, especially like throughout your book. You really get a sense of your passion about it and your um, just your character and of course, like your personality a little bit too. Um it's, it's, these are things that just came out of, you know, this is who I am. And this is, these are things that came out of conversations that I had with patients over many years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you do this day in and day out and you're sick and sitting down with people face to face across, you know, from one another, this is, you know, quite simply what I did as part of being inspired by my own personal transformation and the transformations of my patients. So, and it just, it, it was taking that experience and just putting it into words on pieces of paper so that other people could enjoy it beyond the, beyond the confines of a clinic. Yeah, true. I think that that being able to diffuse that information for a broader, broader audience is profound. Definitely. Well, let's get into it a little bit because I want to talk about some of those things. And especially if people aren't aware, haven't read the book, 
What is the golden rule that you drive home in the book about eating plant foods? Well, I think that we've we've overcomplicated diet. There's how many dietary patterns now? <laughs> so many fads, right? So many concepts. And we we don't have to spend time going through all of them. But I think that, you know, really what we come back to is a concept that's very simple and frankly kind of fun. Mm-hmm. And it's about abundance as opposed to restriction. Because every other diet wants to say, don't eat this. And I'm saying to you, no, no, no. Rather than avoiding, let's gravitate towards the best food. The golden rule is to eat a wide variety of plants. Eat as much variety as possible. Mm-hmm. And there's a number of reasons why I advocate for this concept. The first is that as a gastroenterologist, I've been paying very close attention to the microbiome research mm-hmm. through the years. And um, there was a study that was published based upon what's called the American Gut Project which is the largest study to date that allows us to make connections between the way that people eat, the way that they live, and the health of their gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. And when they performed their analysis using all of this information, more than 11,000 people, and and by the way, far beyond the bounds of the United States of America, it's, uh, I believe, 42 countries and territories. When they performed their analysis, there was a clear-cut winner in terms of what was the single most powerful predictor of a healthy gut microbiome, and that was the diversity of plants in your diet. So specifically, in that study, the people who had the healthiest guts were the people who were eating at least 30 plants per week. There's a reason for this. The reason is that plants contain the nutrients that our microbes love. We call those prebiotics. Prebiotics are the food for the microbiome. And there's basically three prebiotics. Fiber is the main one. Dietary fiber is found in all plants. So fruits, vegetables, whole grains, seeds, nuts, and legumes. And then by the way, mushrooms technically are not plants, but I consider them to be plants and they also contain fiber. So fiber is in all those places. Number two, the the second prebiotic are resistant starches. You can think of resistant starches as basically being fiber. They behave the exact same way. And they are found in things like uh, legumes or whole grains or potatoes, things like this. And then the third type of prebiotic are the polyphenols. Polyphenols are what give plants their color. So like we say, eat the rainbow. And that's really just a way of saying eat as many different types of polyphenols as possible. Right. So when we eat a wide variety of plants, we're getting many different types of fiber. We're getting different types of resistant starches. And we're getting many different types of polyphenols. Because really plants are the source for the nutrients that feed and empower our gut microbes. Mm-hmm. So it's quite fascinating to consider that, you know, we don't need to count calories. We don't need to uh, avoid or think of life as being like this list of foods that you're not going to eat. But instead, what we need to do is just crowd out the other food by gravitating towards the healthful stuff, which are the plants. And when we eat these plants, don't just always get the same stuff. Don't always eat, like don't always just have the salad with one tomato that you cut four ways and maybe a cucumber. Like look for opportunities to add more variety. And that to me is if I could send a message to the listeners who are with us right now, if there's only one takeaway, like I don't, whatever dietary pattern you follow, it doesn't matter to me. I want you to do this. 
Right. Add more varieties of plants to your diet. This is how we get to better health. Right. And I think a lot, a few easy ways to do that. And your cookbook does this really well. It's like, if you have a toast and you're just putting uh, a nut butter on it, well, you're missing a lot of potential opportunity there. You could put seeds on it. You could put herbs on it. You could put fruit on it. Um, and bowls too. Like you have a lot of bowls, you have smoothies, stuff like that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, you start going through your day, it's like, okay, so breakfast, breakfast could be um, oatmeal, could be a smoothie, it could be avocado toast. I love all three of those. And all three of them, there are simple opportunities where if I like say to the listener at home, what would you put if we're, if we're being creative with diversity of plants? What would you put on avocado toast? And they would probably come up with some things that I wouldn't come up with. Right. That's really cool. That's exciting. Um, lunch could be soups, salads, sandwiches, right? All of those, it's just like, all you got to do is think diversity of plants and you can make it happen. And then dinner time, like I love, as you mentioned, bowls. I love like grain and legume-based bowls. So it could be like a burrito bowl or it could be like a curry. But either way, think about the fresh herbs. Think about the different plants that you could throw into that mix um, and add something to it. And so, yeah, I think what it comes back to is a simple concept here. I, I'm hoping that people... When they step into the supermarket, when they are in the kitchen cooking, when they sit down to have a meal with someone that they love, I hope that they will just quite simply hear my voice. <laughs> diversity of plants, diversity of plants. When they hear that, then the light bulb <laughs> goes off and they they make this simple step and that simple step guides them to better health. Yeah, I'm sure they do. And I know sometimes my patients will be like, when I'm eating, I hear you. I hear you like right there on my shoulder. Yeah. Perfect. It's all yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about adding all these varieties of plant foods, of course, it's going to put a lot of fiber in your diet. You talk about intolerances and maybe going slow. Talk to us a little bit about that because people can get into trouble if they go all in all at once. Yeah. I mean, this is keeping it real. Um, you know, I would be a bad gastroenterologist if all I did is sat there and say that you need more fiber. And if you tell me that fiber is not working for you, then I would tell you that you're a bad person. Well, that that's, that's horrible. Like that's not the way that this works. I think it's important for people to understand that when we process and digest fiber, which by the way, like fiber is actually digested. It's just not digested by us humans. Mm -hmm. It's our microbes that do it. Right. They have like literally tens of thousands of unique enzymes that are a part of what they do, their functional ability, and allow them to break down fiber for us and transform it into the most healing, most anti-inflammatory thing I've ever come across Right. in my 20 years of study in medicine, which is the, which are the short chain fatty acids. Everyone's heard of butyrate. So butyrate's the classic one, acetate, propionate. Um, these are the short chain fatty acids. So you have to understand fiber is digested. It's digested by our microbes. We are 100% reliant on our microbes to do this for us. And because we are 100% reliant on these microbes to do this for us, there are limits to their ability. Different people's microbiomes have different capacities to process and digest fiber. Those that have a damaged gut, for example, people who suffer with digestive health problems like irritable bowel syndrome, inherently, because of the damage to their microbiome, their ability to process and digest fiber is more limited, but it's adaptable. You're not stuck. This is not lifelong, you know, suffering and challenges. It's like I would make an analogy to exercise. 
So it's like a muscle. Right. Your gut can be trained. It can you can take it at a starting point of like baseline, not a lot of fiber, which is 95% of Americans. You can start there. And by slowly and repeatedly challenging your gut with incrementally increased amounts of fiber, this is the same concept as going to the gym and starting off with weights that you can actually lift. And it doesn't matter. There's some guy that's been going to the gym for 30 years and he's lifting way more than you. That's okay. <laughs> do what you can do. Right. Do it today and come back in a couple more days and do a little bit more. This is the way that we guide ourselves and fortify and strengthen our gut. Because what happens is when you challenge your body with fiber, the gut microbes that are um, beneficial and able to help you process and digest that fiber, they grow stronger. They become more capable of helping you with that fiber, just like a muscle grows stronger when you exercise it. So at the end of the day, if you struggle with these types of foods, it's, it's perhaps too much too fast. Right. And what we should do on the flip side to get you back on track is start low mm -hmm. and go slow, just like exercise. Right. And of course, sometimes people can have significant allergies and, and like, for instance, celiac disease, which is more rare than I think, you know, uh, mainstream media will give um, credence to. But I think that um, you and you mentioned those specific things in your cookbook and what to avoid and how to distinguish what the genesis of what's going on is, of course. But what if it isn't something specific like that, what is kind of the reason for these intolerances? Well, uh, so the cookbook is interesting because it became um, originally it was supposed to be just recipes and it ended up becoming a a dietary protocol to help people overcome food intolerances. And that's really in response to what happened with my first book, Fiber Fueled, because so many people were reaching out to me and being like, Dr. B, I'm on board. I want to do this, but I don't feel well when I, you know, increase my fiber dramatically. So, you know, Brooke, as you're uh, noting the first step, and by the way, this is part of an acronym that I use in the cookbook called the growth strategy. So uh, my ears perked up, but the listener perhaps who hasn't read my book may not have noticed this, but use the word Genesis. Genesis is the first letter in the growth strategy. The growth strategy is my approach letter by letter to how I will work through with patients to heal and improve their food intolerances. So Genesis G stands for basically understanding the root cause of why this is happening. And there are a number of potential medical conditions, celiac disease being one, constipation is a very common one, gallbladder type issues. There's a number of different medical conditions that can predispose a person to developing food intolerances. The most common cause of food intolerances is irritable bowel syndrome. And the root of irritable bowel syndrome is damage to the microbiome. And as we were just discussing, when it comes to fiber, your body is 100% reliant. Like you don't have the enzymes in any way to process fiber. So you are 100% outsourcing fiber digestion to these microbes. And if they're not in a good place, then you're going to struggle with this food. Mm -hmm. You'll have a limited capacity. It's not that you can't eat the fiber. It's that you have limitations to how much fiber you can eat. And so by going low 
and slowly increasing it, by going low, you are reducing the amount of fiber in your diet to a point that your microbes can actually handle it. And then by slowly increasing it, just like exercise, you are incrementally challenging so that you can add more functional ability to your gut microbes. And how long does this transition take? Particularly if you suffer with dysbiosis and you have these symptoms of irritable, irritable bowel syndrome. It depends on the individual person. We are so unique in terms of our microbiome. Like literally there are 8 billion people on the planet and we believe that there are no two people with the exact same microbiome. Um, our research has shown that if you take two people who are identical twins, identical twins, same genetic code, same mother, in the vast majority of cases raised in the exact same environmental circumstances, they will still share only about 35 or 38% of the same microbes. Mm-hmm. So we're just so radically different in terms of like the healing process. It kind of depends on where your starting point is. So much like exercise, you know, there are some people that they haven't been working out. They can go into the gym and they can still lift quite a bit because their body is just already in that place. And there are some people that they're recovering from an injury Mm -hmm. and they can't even raise their arm over their head. Yeah. Right. So let alone lift a weight. Mm-hmm. And so I think the the point with either of those two people is that if you were guiding them towards strength and that was your goal, you would always meet them where they are and set expectations that make sense for that individual person. So the expectations for the person who can't lift their arm over their head is completely different than the expectation for the person who's big and bulky and ready to throw 25 pounds up there. Sure. And that comes with going, starting low and going slow. If we say we have a patient who is like, they're pretty healthy, but they haven't had a whole lot of plant foods, but they have a pretty good microbiome. How long does it take for them to shift from like, not a great microbiome, but like a pretty good one if they're eating a variety, say 30 plus plant foods? Well, uh, you know, it's hard to say with complete clarity, but what I will say is this, we have um, at this point, multiple studies that have demonstrated that if you sustain something for about four weeks, it can have an impact on the microbiome in a positive and beneficial way. So that's not to say that four weeks is a magical number. I think that there is variation depending on the individual person. But what I would say to, to anyone is this, if you stick with this for four weeks, I'm convinced that there will be changes that are underway. Mm-hmm. How far along you will be, it depends. But if you stick with it longer than four weeks, you will continue to derive the benefits. You'll just keep getting better. Okay. So I want to talk to you about Zoe. I actually did submit my stool sample to Zoe. I was a little disappointed when it came back because I didn't have this robust gut microbiome that I thought I would have. Of course, it was more on the front end of my plant-based journey, Um, but it was so insightful. It was so cool to see. I kind of want to know more about where Zoe is going because I've heard you say that this is like the future, this individualized um, profile of your microbiome. Yeah, so I think kind of taking it from the top for people who haven't heard of Zoe. And let me, first of all, just be clear. And you mentioned this in the very beginning when you introduced me that I'm the U.S. medical director of Zoe. And the reason why I'm in that position is because I wholeheartedly believe in what we're doing. And um, so to explain this, you know, first of all, let's explain what personalized nutrition is and where this concept comes from. The problem that we currently have is that when we uh, say things are like evidence-based, 
what we're really saying is that on average, if you take a large population of people, something shows a benefit to certain people, right? So Brooke, we could do a study where we uh, compare a pescatarian diet to a vegan diet. And um, you might notice a difference between those two populations, between those two dietary patterns among a population. You might say, this is just an example that the, we'll just say the vegan diet wins. Okay. The, by the way, there are some studies that show the opposite, but let's just say that the vegan diet wins in this study. Well, here's the problem. What if you're the person who benefits from the pescatarian diet, like clearly benefited from the pescatarian diet, right? right? But the study says that the vegan diet wins. What if you're the person who clearly did not benefit from the vegan diet, yet the vegan, the, the study says the vegan diet wins. The problem is that we're looking at population averages and you're not average. Right. You're a unique individual. Mm -hmm. And we know that your response to food is going to be a reflection of your unique biology, which includes your genetics, but it also powerfully includes your gut microbiome. Mm -hmm. And so... If we want to move nutrition to a better and more, I think, accurate place, we need the ability to be able to predict on an individual level as, a, as opposed to a population average level. Mm -hmm. And the way that we accomplish this is by massive data. We need a lot of information in a very large database and then allowing the sort of new levels of computer algorithms that we have available to us. We call it machine learning. It's almost like artificial intelligence, but basically what it does is it will take a look at these, uh, at the available data, and it will identify patterns that are unique to the individual. So what it'll do is it'll say, look, um, Brooke, we have uh, compared your results to the results of, we now have more than 50,000 people that have done Zoe. So like, think about the amount of information. And Brooke, we've like compared your results to these 50,000 people. And here's what we found. This is the expected response of your body to these foods. This is the expected response of your body to these foods. These are the foods that we think that you should gravitate towards for better gut health. Mm -hmm. So with Zoe, what we're doing is we're taking um, different pieces of information that individually, each one is cool, mm -hmm. but collectively together, so much more powerful. Yeah. So a every single person, let's pretend like, cause you've done this Brooke, but just for the listener who is not familiar, you receive a kit in the mail. And basically what you're going to do is you're going to wear a continuous glucose monitor for about two weeks. You're going to submit a poop specimen, which is going to do state of the art microbiome analysis of your poop to look at your microbiome. Um, you're going to do a card where you submit a blood uh, lipid response. So we know like what's going on with your blood lipids. And we pack in these muffins where the, the, this is actually an important part of this, where you eat this muffin and it's the exact same muffin that I ate. So now we can compare our results head to head and it allows us to understand our individualized response because we are eating the exact same food. Mm -hmm. And you enter into the app, what you're eating during that week or two weeks. And um, ultimately, again, all this information, I mean, this is a lot of information, your blood sugar literally around the clock your blood lipid response, what you're eating, what your microbiome says, all of this goes into the same computer and that computer starts to run algorithms 
that basically will identify those patterns. Mm -hmm. So, you know, look, I see this. So in order for us to move forward with nutrition, you know, there are a lot of artificial promises out there. There are companies using the exact same technologies and they don't, like I haven't seen papers published to back up the claims. It creates a murky environment and it creates skepticism because people don't necessarily get what they're looking for. Yeah. It comes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, which is that we have to get uh, really good, every single one of us, at identifying trusted sources. And one of the ways in which you can identify a trusted source when it comes to scientific credibility is to take a look and see, did they have they published their results? Are they transparent? Are they subjecting themselves to peer review? As an example with Zoe, part of why I fell in love with this company and wanted to, like I wanted to be a part of what they're doing is that they started in 2017 and basically they invested, rather than investing into marketing immediately and just selling their product, they instead invested into running clinical trials for several years mm -hmm. and took a tremendous risk. Yeah. Because... Like, what if it doesn't work out? You're just a loss. Right. But in 2020, they started to publish their results and they're publishing the results in literally the top journals on the planet, like Nature Medicine, for example, which is where it, when we find the cure for cancer, the same journals, that's where they're going to publish it. So Zoe has now published, I don't even know the number. I would, like we're publishing, you know, five to 15 papers every month. Right. Um, so we've published, I think, certainly more than 50 papers. and climbing rapidly. And that to me is part of where the credibility comes from is that like we're transparent and we're doing, we're publishing in these journals. Yeah. I wanted to talk to you about, and maybe it's not directly from Zoe, but what is coming out? What are, what are some of the fun or exciting recent research articles that are either coming out of Zoe or that you've just read in nutritional science or gut health? Well, you know, we're constantly evolving. I mean, there's, there's papers coming out every single month that could be transformative. So, you know, as a quick example, um, there's ideas that were in my first book, Fiber Fueled, that at the time of publication, at the time that I was researching and writing it, um, there were, in some cases, a leap of faith that I had to take because the science just wasn't there one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But I felt like people deserve to hear my opinion based upon the available information. Mm -hmm. So, one of those spots was fermented foods, like, uh, I advocated for fermented foods in my book that I, it came out in 2020, but I basically started writing it in 2018. And, uh, what's interesting is that, so the book comes out in 2020 and in the summer of 2021, there's a paper out of Stanford university where they, uh, it was a randomized controlled trial. And the intervention was to have people start consuming fermented food because frankly, almost no Americans are. Right. And what they discovered was that after 10 weeks of quite simply adding fermented food to your diet, we're not talking about bowls of sauerkraut, by the way, we're talking about like a couple bites at each meal. But um, after 10 weeks of doing this, they found that people had healthier gut, a healthier gut microbiome and lower measures of inflammation. Okay. So another example, uh, I have believed for many years that like herbs and spices should be showcased in our diet. Right. The 
flavors that come from these herbs and spices are nature actually providing phytochemicals designed to be anti-inflammatory and beneficial to our health. There's a reason why they taste so delicious to us uh-huh. because they nourish our body. They're good for us. Mm-hmm. And uh, new research that recently came out is now showing that herbs and spices are beneficial to our gut microbiome. Yeah, I just saw that. That's so exciting. So, um, well, you mentioned sources. You mentioned knowing good sources, trusted sources. Who is it you're following or you're influenced by right now? Who are you reading? Or, well, you know, for me, I feel that it's a bit unique because what I never do, to be honest with you, is just kind of accept opinions. What I do is I go to the source material. Perfect. And the reason for that with me is that I, I'm in, I, I feel like I'm in a bit of a unique position because not only am I a medical doctor, not only do I have um, tremendous amount of clin- clinical experience, but I also trained in research. Yeah. And so that sort of merging of those two worlds, I feel is part of what has been actually really helpful to me. I didn't expect it to be, but it has turned out to be very helpful to me. Because I just go straight to the straight to the science and I'll read the paper. Um, so I would say PubMed. Like <laughs> PubMed is my source. Uh, I spend hours per day going to PubMed and reading papers. You know, beyond that, I mean, there certainly are scientists that inspire me. Uh, I just mentioned the Stanford study with fermented food. There were two scientists involved with that uh, particular paper that I would describe as inspirations for me. One is Christopher Gardner. He is a, a scientist who studies um, dietary patterns and nutrition mm-hmm. and um, uh, does like large scale clinical trials. And then the other is Justin Sonnenberg. And Justin Sonnenberg is a microbiome researcher who's inspired me. So, that, you know, those are some examples. Great. Thanks for sharing that. Um Let's talk, let's switch gears a little bit. I know that you're a father. I think a lot of, our listeners are, they hesitate because they can't get their kids on board or they're used to, you know, just kind of the default things, chicken nuggets or macaroni and cheese. And it's hard to get their kids to eat vegetables. What kind of approach do you take with your family? Well, I think it's very important for people to understand that um, don't look at Instagram or social media and think that this is the way that families are being raised. being a parent is a very it's it's it it comes from this source of love but it's so imperfect Uh right we're all just doing our best yeah i mean so uh i i feel that any sort of perception of perfect or what you're supposed to be can be very deflating if you think that that's what you're supposed to be doing and you're not able to achieve it i love that answer (laughs) yeah um but you know, at the end of the day, what we want is to just like with adults, <laughs> uh, we just want to gravitate towards plants and having more plants in the diet, having a variety of plants in the diet and finding ways to sneak it in where it's not like, Hey, I put broccoli on your plate. Why are you not eating that broccoli? Right. Right. So look, this, every kid in America, they're going to grab it. If you serve them chicken nuggets, they're going to eat the chicken nuggets instead of the broccoli. And that's because those foods were designed to be hyper palatable. Adults do the exact same thing unless they show Mm self-restraint. 
we will do things like I, I'm just like literally thinking about last night. So this is like complete recall bias. Like it's just like whatever happened at dinner last night. But my wife will often prepare nice cream before dinner. Okay. Okay. And nice cream is a way of like sneaking plants into your kid's diet. Okay. That is fun. Nice. It's delicious. Yeah. All you do is take a blender and freeze your banana as the key. So like peel your banana and throw it into a bag and put it in your freezer. And when you put a frozen banana into your blender, it's going to turn the texture of what would have been a smoothie into something thicker that is more akin to a sorbet or ice cream. Mm -hmm. um, and then you just add in whatever frozen berries you like. So we had like two nights ago, a blueberry one. It was such a popping, vivid blue from the blueberries. It was really cool. Last night it was strawberry. So um, we start with that. Okay. That way, like your kids are getting a couple serves of fruit right there. That's genius. <laughs> and um, then we try to prepare dishes that are uh, kid friendly and delicious, but sneak the plants in. Mm -hmm. So like as an example, um, when we make tomato sauce, we will start with the sauce, but then we start adding stuff in. So my wife will typically add several different legumes in there. And then like my kids don't love mushrooms. So we'll either go light on the mushrooms or we'll separate them because my wife and I love mushrooms. Oh, I hate mushrooms. <laughs> so it's just like, look, you got to pick your battles again. Like I'm showing you, like, this is not perfect. You got to choose your battles, but like we'll sneak other stuff in there that, you know, other plants, you get to throw some spinach in there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, last night we had cauliflower in there and it's like, you can't even tell. Right. You can't even tell it's in there. Perfect. But it is. Yeah. yeah. And so this is where you can take something like uh, sauce and just transform it by adding a wide variety of plants to it. Okay. Well, speaking of imperfect, what kind of um, cravings or vices or indulgences do you, what are your favorites? Oh, gosh. I struggle with, um, I, I have a sweet tooth in the evening. Hmm. So... I try to either like force myself into time restricted eating. Okay. And that that sort of construct to me the the biggest benefit from my perspective to, to that is just that it will create a way in which I eat dinner and then don't eat anything after that. Right. Or don't have an alcoholic beverage after that. So that's like that helps me quite a bit. Um so but if I do sort of break from that, then I typically will opt for things like in a perfect world, berries in a perfect world, <laughs> a less, in a very much less perfect world, high quality chocolate and only like two pieces and take little nibs and just sort of savor it. And like, rather than like chewing it and just swallowing instead, like allowing it to really melt in your mouth and exploring the, the complex flavors with your tongue. Uh -huh. so, so that way, like two pieces of chocolate goes a really long way. That's a really, um, really great tip. And then I won't lie. I like not a moo. I try, I try to be good about it. Um, but like not a moo ice cream or other sort of plant-based sources of ice cream. I've found many times that mint chocolate, mint chocolate chip was like my favorite ice cream back in the day. So, and I find that many times that actually translates pretty well to a plant-based um, palate. 
Yeah, great. I mean, I'm a big mint chocolate chip girl myself. Um, okay, so that leads us perfectly into my final question, which is you mentioned kind of the the time-restricted eating. Um, and you mentioned in your book too, giving your gut health a rest, but that is just one portion of kind of a broader perspective on a lot of things that help your overall health. So what other things do you implement besides just what you put in your body to help your overall health or your gut health? Um, I think that it's important to see and understand that there are ways in which to improve your, your gut health without even lifting a fork. It's so easy for me to fall into the trap and I've literally done it you know, today where it makes it sound like nutrition is the only thing that matters when in fact there are these other elements. So exercise matters. Mm-hmm. Exercise is beneficial to our gut health. Actually, it's kind of fascinating if you start to dig into this. Our microbes will change in a different way based upon what exercises you're doing. As an example, uh, a person who lifts weights, the research has suggested that you get a microbiome that's better at producing short-chain fatty acids by lifting weights. Those short-chain fatty acids, there's actually like a gut-muscle connection. People have heard about the gut-brain connection. There's a gut-muscle connection. And it's mediated by these short-chain fatty acids that are produced by consuming fiber. And they have an anti-inflammatory effect. And so part of what they do is they help in your recovery process. They also reduce muscle mass loss because of those connections. So um, flip side, if you're a runner, the research has indicated that there are specific microbes that show up in the gut of people who run that are designed to help us break down lactic acid. Now, that is fascinating. That's fascinating. All yes. of because lactic acid is what accumulates in our muscle and causes muscle fatigue Uh and endurance is a reduction like endurance is promoted when we reduce the presence of lactic acid in our muscular tissues Mm -hmm. and so the suggestion here again there's a lot that we don't know we're touching the tip of the iceberg here but the suggestion here is that the person who uh, runs, shifts their microbiome in a way that may actually help to promote that endurance that they need when they're running distances. Mm. So running, I mean, it, it gets back to the, the tenets of lifestyle medicine, to be completely frank, you know, eat a predominantly plant-based diet, exercise, um, early bedtime, get a good night's rest, engage with other humans. If you have trauma or any sort of thing that's holding you back, it doesn't like when I use the word trauma, I want to be clear. Some people interpret that to be like big life events, but to me, it can be just that you are not at ease with your current life and there is something that's going on that's holding you back. Mm-hmm. And addressing those particular issues can have a tremendous benefit and effect on your gut microbiome uh, in a number of ways. So, you know, you can kind of just come back to these general rules that we keep hearing about, and it's like, and you study them in terms of how they affect the gut, it's there. The evidence is there. And that's so exciting and interesting. Really interesting. Um, I could talk to you about this all day long. I'm also such a chemistry nerd. I was a chemistry major in college too. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, but I just want to thank you so, so, so much for your time. This has been so fun for me. And um, just thank you. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you to the listeners for hanging out with us today. And if if you want to uh, learn more or hear more about the things that I uh, do, it's the 
easy way to do that is come to my website, theplantfedgut.com and sign up for my email list. I send emails with like study breakdowns when new studies come out all the time. And, uh, and my two books, Fiber Field and the Fiber Fields Cookbook are out there and available for you to check out. Yeah. And then how can they find you on Instagram and how do they get a hold of you if you're providing a course? So I'm on Instagram as the Gut Health MD. That is also my handle for Facebook and on TikTok. I'm not like I just I'm getting started on TikTok, but uh, I am there and it's the Gut Health MD underscore because I think that there's like probably a 12 year old kid who took my Gut Health MD <laughs> handle. So and then my courses, if you go to my website, theplantfedgut.com, you'll see at the top the menu, the menu bar that includes courses. I have my master class, which is like a in-depth seven month, uh, seven week experience. Um, you know, I won't go into all the details, but the, the point being like, it's, it's a very sort of comprehensive, large course. That's my main class. But then I have these smaller, more focused courses for people to have particular interests. So I have a constipation class, uh, an acid reflux class. And then I have three classes for people to have food intolerances that are sort of targeting that. Awesome. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Will Bolsowitz. We are so happy that you joined us today. And if you guys enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a five-star review and share this with a friend. We'll see you next week. If you follow me on Instagram, you might've seen that I partnered with a home organization company here in Austin. It's called Methodize Austin. And what we did was we went into somebody's home. They were a giveaway winner and we totally reorganized their kitchen, but we also consulted with them about healthy eating, gave recipes, went grocery shopping with them. And we called it a total healthy kitchen overhaul. If you're in need of this service because you're just trying to get on the right track, you don't know where to start. You think by changing your environment, you could potentially get on the right track on your health journey, please reach out. We are now offering this as a joint package called the Healthy Kitchen Overhaul. And if you mention this podcast and you hire the both of us in this package, you'll get 10% off. So reach out to info at methodizeaustin.com or you can also reach out to info at thatrootedfeeling.com.